Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at visual intelligence and how to see and communicate more clearly in all aspects of life. Among the topics we'll discuss are how to look at the world the way you look at a piece of art, the three questions you can ask yourself to immediately make sense of a situation, and how one word can drastically change the way we understand a situation. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Amy Herman. Amy is the author of the recently released book, Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life. She's a lawyer and art historian who uses great works of art to systematically sharpen observation and analytical skills. Amy has instituted a multitude of programs to help medical students and members of the FBI, the State Department, Fortune 500 companies, and armed forces branches improve their observational skills in order to recognize and synthesize the most useful information in any given situation. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, on CBS This Morning, and on NPR, among others. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Congratulations on the publication of the book. Uh, So let's begin by framing the discussion today, Amy. What is visual intelligence? Is it something that affects everyone in their day-to-day lives or something that's more cultivated by years of studying details? Let's just say I like to think that everyone has a certain amount of visual intelligence. And my goal in the book and in teaching my Art of Perception class is to help augment and refine our visual intelligence. We see so much, and I want to get my readers and my participants to think more about what they're seeing and move some of that over into observation. And in your book, it's called Visual Intelligence again, and the courses that inspired it focus on art and studying its intricacies. How did you end up choosing this angle and why is it so effective? It was uh, sort of a natural coalescence of my background, although it sounds um, too random for that. I am a recovering lawyer and an art historian, uh, and I like to think that I took the practical aspects of each of those disciplines and brought them together in this program. I started it back in 2000 uh, at at a museum in New York, the Frick Collection. I was head of education there, and I started the program for medical students. And the idea was not mine, came from Yale, and with their gracious permission, I started my own program for medical students. And a couple of years into that, I was teaching medical students to look at works of art to make them better observers of their patients. And I had this epiphany that this has much broader application. It's just not just medical students who need to see, who need to have visual acuity, who need to be better communicators. And so I took it a step further and... Uh, adapted the program for law enforcement and the intelligence community. And it has grown and grown and grown. And art has proven to be a really rich resource and a wonderful set of new data to help people across the professional spectrum enhance their observation skills. So one of the biggest challenges with the technique, I imagine, is bridging the gap between noticing the intricacies in pieces of art 
and then generally ensuring that we fully observe the everyday situations that we're in. So with art, obviously you're looking at a you know, canvas on a wall. Life is messier than that. But one technique that you suggest is called COBRA, which helps us combat unintentional visual lapses. Yes. Um, I want to just add to your comment that the leap from looking at art to looking at life is, is really not as big as it sounds because I choose some messy art to look at. <laughs> uh, I look at I look at works of art, painting, sculpture, and photography that make people uncomfortable, that people don't like, and that they might not understand, which is what happens in life all the time. And when we're looking at the works of art, I force them to talk about what it is that they see, even if it makes them squirm, because we have to do that in life every day. And the method that I use in the book, the COBRA method, I certainly don't want to burden anybody with, you know, extra exercises, but I want this to become automatic. And what I ask participants to do and readers to do is to first look at what might be camouflage. That's the C in Cobra. What might they be missing? What's sort of hidden in the details in the background? And then I ask them to step back and make sure that they're just doing one task at a time because, the, you know, studies are replete with evidence that multitasking really doesn't do any of us any good, especially when we're trying to focus. And then I tell people, if possible, take a break from what you're looking at. Because when you look at something over and over again, you're not going to see what you need to see. You're not going to see the big picture. And then after you take a break, realign, that's the R, realign your expectations. You were looking to solve something a certain way, but if you approach it a different way, you might be able to solve it more efficiently. And finally, the A in COBRA stands for ask. And this is a theme that runs through the book. Step back and ask somebody what else they see. Because very selfishly, multiple perspectives make for better decision making. And if you ask someone and say, look, here's my problem. This is my proposed solution. What do you think? What do you see? You may get an entirely new perspective that you may have never considered before and will enable you to make a better, more informed decision. And so let me ask, you mentioned at the beginning of that answer, forcing people to look at art that they're uncomfortable with or that maybe is provocative. So that would be like Jeff Koons, or do you have, what would you recommend people take a look at to kind of force themselves out of their comfort zones? I always, I love to use works by Lucian Freud, big, fat, naked people, because they're real, they're everyday people. And we need to think about our choice of words when we're talking about things that make us uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about political correctness. I'm, when someone says, well, I don't like that, I say, well, I, you know, thanks for telling me, but it's really irrelevant to me whether you like it or not. What do you see? And sometimes we get to the root of what their observations are, and they're reading something into it that's really not there. And so I, I focus in on observations of things that make us uncomfortable. So we look at Lucian Freud, we look at photographs by Diane Arbus, things that are sometimes tough to look at, but when we really get to the root of our observations, we see that we can be comfortable talking about them. Yeah, and, and one of the things that you write about in the book is solo observation. So what's that, what is that concept and what are some of the benefits of, of taking some time to reflect alone on things? Well, it's sort of the opposite of when I'm asking you to collaborate and ask. Uh, I ask people to rely on their inherent sense of observation before collaborating. The best example I can give you is I tell my medical students that when they walk into the room of a patient, before you pick up the notes, before you see what the night nurse has written, just look at your patient. 
look to see, is there something on the table next to them? Are there flowers? Are there cards? Are they wearing their own pajamas or a hospital gown? Do they look happy to see you? Do they look scared to see you? Reflect on your own inherent sense of observation before looking to see what others have written because then we'll be biased and we'll be looking for those things. Same thing in a museum. Before you read the label of what someone else has written about a work of art, just take a look at it yourself. What do you see? What do you notice? What do you like? What don't you like? What's off-putting? Then read the label and see all the things that you might have missed. So one of the most interesting anecdotes on the power of the brain in your book was the explanation of the experiment on increasing finger strength that was done by experimenters at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Could you explain a little bit about this experiment and talk about why the subconscious mind plays such a big role in our lives? Well, it's it's interesting. I'm going to give you a different example that I just heard yesterday. Okay. That that if it's okay because sure. it, it operates on the subconscious. Somebody gave me this example. They had mentioned the finger strength example, and they said that they had read about a study um, where they uh, presented the same person's resume on two different clipboards. One was a very thin clipboard and one was a very hefty and substantial clipboard. And they asked various individuals to rate the people in the resume. The resumes were identical. And the resumes that were on the substantial and heavy clipboard got universally higher marks than the person on the thin and sort of shabby clipboard. And it's that same idea of tactility and how what we're feeling and our, I, I try to make the point that observations of the five senses inform your perceptions. And just by, I was amazed that just by the heft and the feel of a clipboard in one's hands, could you actually make what you thought was an objective decision about the merits of somebody's qualifications. Okay, so in the book you emphasize that prioritizing everything you're observing will help you make sense of a situation and choose the best course of action. So the technique that you suggest involves, involves asking yourself three questions. Can you talk about what those three questions are? And is it a technique that's effective in helping people discover the most important, well, I'm just gonna re-ask that and I'll end with, can, can you talk about what those three questions are? Absolutely. Okay. The three questions that I propose to ask uh, and any new situation, any new patient, any new client, any new problem that you have, you have to ask yourself first, what do I know? What do I definitively know about this situation? And then you ask yourself, what don't I know? And you say to yourself, well, how do I identify what I don't know? And I rephrase the question to say, well, what might I, what am I missing here? What information am I missing? And the third question logically follows, if I have the opportunity to get more information, what do I need to know? So the questions are, what do I know? What don't I know? And if I have the opportunity to get more information, what do I need to know? And the reason these questions are valuable as sort of a module in problem solving is when you step back and actually ask yourself these questions, you realize that what you know may be an assumption and you're able to separate assumptions from facts. And then when you ask yourself what you don't know, you, can, you tangibly identify what's missing from a problem, and then it leads you into the third question, what information do I need to know, and how am I going to go about getting it to solve this particular problem? And this model came from the intelligence community. It came from 
the CIA's online source of study, the, the psychology of intelligence analysis. And while it's a complicated read, I distilled the chapter on perception down to those three questions, and I find it to be a really handy model far outside the intelligence community. Yeah, and it, it sounds like something that uh, Donald Rumsfeld got pilloried for when he said it, but it's kind of the concept of the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns, I guess. That's exactly it. That's artfully put. <laughs> well done. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that segues nicely into the, into the next question, which is the importance of language. So the book is about visual intelligence, but you also mentioned each of the five senses before and the importance of language being obviously plays to our sense of if we're hearing something, our auditory sense. You write about how one word can drastically change the way a situation is perceived and understood. So why do you think it's important to mention avoiding certain subjective words and phrases like obviously, clearly, never, and always? You know, in the, in the four A's, the third A is articulate to be able to articulate your situation or what it is that you observe. And I always want to bold, underscore, and circle the word articulate because communication is really the crux of our observations. You can be the best observer in the world, but if you can't communicate your observations, it doesn't do anybody any good. And so I emphasize in the program the concept of choice of words and the words that you mentioned. I. I ask participants to refrain from using obviously and clearly and never and always because they're these broad, overreaching words. And the example I give is pundits on the news shows. When the Egypt airplane went down last week and I was watching the news, everyone was saying, or so many of them were saying, well, obviously this was terrorism, or clearly we've had mechanical failure, or obviously this is a pattern in Egyptian you know, air traffic. None of it was obvious and none of it was clear. There were far too many unanswered questions for it to be obvious or clear. And I would prefer that people choose their words carefully rather than say, well, obviously it's the case of X. I would prefer that they say, it appears to me to be a case of X because of Y and Z. And I hear people make word choices, oh, poor word choices over and over again. And I want to say, you need to shift that because this is what you're saying and I'm not sure it's what you mean to be saying. And you, you write also about communicating not just with others, but with yourself, especially in stressful situations. Yes. So why is it important that we be able to distance ourselves kind of from our own feelings and emotions in order to be objective? I think the most powerful example I can give you that has been relayed to me from one of my participants, as most people are aware, we're facing a really unique culture in law enforcement now. There's a lot of scrutiny on police officers and law enforcement and professionals, how they're dealing with the community, with unarmed people and, you know, all the shootings and, and video that we've seen. And I had a sheriff's deputy write to me. He was uh, training some new young officers. And he said to them, he said, after I took your class, I was able to say to them, before you pull that trigger, you need to be able to articulate to yourself why you're pulling the trigger because you're going to be accountable to others. And I understand, you know, nobody can stand in the shoes of a police officer under exigent circumstances in the dangerous situation, the adrenaline is pumping. But what he said is so true, especially now. Before you make a decision, pulling a trigger 
you have to be able to tell yourself why you're doing it because after the fact, there's going to be tremendous accountability. Yeah. And, and you mentioned law enforcement and you've also brought your, your studies and, and your courses to uh, an impressive list of clients. It includes the FBI and, and branches of the armed forces. It's also a message that resonates in the corporate world. So how, how, uh, how do you find the message received in, you know, in, in the corporate world? What's the difference maybe in how you tailor the program or is it the same kind of message that you give to everyone? It's a little bit of a different message, although the methodology is pretty much the same. We're still looking at works of art and articulating what we see with, well, hopefully with clarity, precision, and objectivity. But I find that in the, uh, in the corporate world, I'm stressing the idea of articulating what you see in terms of financial trends, trends of a company, and if we're talking about a multinational corporation, how do we communicate that information across cultural landscapes? Because you're dealing, you know, if you have a company that has offices in 72 countries, you're dealing with different cultural landscapes. You may be able to communicate trends and things that you see in markets and marketing and sales, but there's a whole other element to how you communicate that information. The other thing that resonates with CEOs and investment bankers, uh, which we also do with the intelligence community and with the military, is the concept of, you know, not only talking about what you see in your vision and strategy, but also what's missing. And in the book, I call that the pertinent negative. What's not there? How can you articulate what's not there and what needs to be there? So it's not only a matter of affirmative observation, it's the observation of the negative, what's not there. So that seems to be a common thread between intelligence, military, and CEOs. And they're all leaders that have to implement vision uh, to people that, that work under them. And you mentioned that the third A of four is articulation. Can you talk about what the other A's are? Sure. The first A is to assess your situation. Whether it's a new patient, a new client, a new transaction, a new witness, you have to assess what's before you. What do I see? What's going on here? Then you have to analyze it. That's where you break down the information into the useful facets of it and the stuff that you can get rid of right away. When we talk about seeing versus observing, what's important, how do we prioritize? Then the third A, as you mentioned, is articulation of what it is that you've assessed and analyzed. And the fourth A is to adapt your behavior and make a decision based on the other three. Sometimes I, depending on the group, I either say adapt your behavior and make a decision or act. Just do what you need to do based on your assessment, <clears throat> your analysis, and your articulation. Okay, nice. And uh, the, the book is a beautiful book. Uh, thank you so much for, for sending the copy over. Uh, what was the process like to, uh, to get it published? Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, how it came to be? I know it's based on your coursework. Sure. Um, it seemed to be for years, uh, people have been telling me, you need to write a book about this. And I said, I don't have time to write a book. I'm so busy teaching the course. But I realized as people came back to me with their feedback, uh, and their insights about how they were using the course in their various professions. I feel like I have this very unique lens across the professional spectrum. And people were coming back to me with really substantive narratives about how they were using the course. They would come back a month later, six months later, a year later. I've gotten emails from Afghanistan, from military personnel stationed in Afghanistan saying, 
I want you to know what I did based on what I learned from this course. And I thought, I need to write this down. I need to put this in print because the applicability is so broad, people I think would be really interested in not only reading about the applicability of the course, but seeing how looking at works of art, beautiful works of art, sometimes not so beautiful, is changing the way people are doing their jobs and living their lives. And the idea of this volume was a natural outgrowth of the course. And there are 68 works of art in the book. Each one painstakingly, um, I had to <laughs> acquire the permission to reproduce them in the book because I wanted the book to come to life with works of art. It's not just a how-to book. I didn't want to write a how-to book. And the book is is really irrelevant without the works of art to narrate, to, to accompany the narrative. Yeah, it really is a, a beautiful book. It's heavy because it's printed on uh, on high-gloss paper, I believe, with with color illustrations or color color artworks. Uh, published by Houghton Mifflin. Thanks so much to, uh, to Courtney, Layla, and Taryn over there. They were great about uh, getting everything set up. And you're, you're, as we were talking before the podcast got started, you're on tour right now? Yes, I am. I am in Boston right now, and I have uh, quite a few cities to hit before the end of the summer. I'll be in Washington, D.C., and I'll be in Ann Arbor next week, and um, all over. And if anyone wants to read about the, uh, the course or the book, they can reach me at my website at artfulperception.com. Okay, nice. Well, Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about visual intelligence. Uh, we hope to catch you on the book tour when you pass through D.C. Um, and uh, and, and we'll, we'll see you out there online once we get the podcast episode published. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. You Bye-bye. Too. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about Amy Herman, you can visit the website she mentioned at the end of the episode, artfulperception.com. There you can find out more about the influential course that laid the foundation for the book, Visual Intelligence. Sharpen your perception, change your life. Thanks once again to Amy Herman for joining us for this episode of the podcast. And thank you for joining us. Now don't forget to tune into the next episode of the podcast, which is going to be a very, very special episode. The Innovation Engine is turning 100. And we're pleased to welcome Three Pillars CEO David DeWolf back into the studio for this special episode. David, if you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, was actually the very first guest that we had on the podcast. And he's been in a number of other episodes. So we're thrilled to have David coming back in to talk about the innovator's journey. We'll ask him some questions about his personal experience starting Three Pillar Global and turning that from a company with two employees Uh, into one that has more than 700. Among the topics we will discuss for the next episode of the podcast uh, are the trends that are getting the most play at this summer's biggest technology conferences, including what to expect from the invasion of the bots and why seemingly everyone is getting into the game when it comes to the connected home. So don't miss the next episode of the podcast, number 100, when we will, of course, be keeping it 100. Thanks again for tuning into this episode, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com. 
You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. And you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store.